0: Can I get the icon in the cornflower? Hey everybody, welcome to the first episode of the Can I Get That Software in Blue podcast. We have a great guest here today. We're going to dive into Zoom's 10K filing and recent quarterly earnings announcement. And after that, we're going to discuss some recent tech news and how that might relate to people who are in the sales side of things, whether that's salespeople or pre-sales technical solution architects. Uh, So let's dive right in. I hope this
1: podcast is just like a hot air balloon ride for you. So on that note, let's get this balloon in the air.
0: Our opinions are our own. They don't reflect the opinions of the companies we work for. And we're not here to give investment advice. We're not financial advisors or anything of the sort. So don't take anything that we say as, as investment advice. All right, we're joined here by Gary DeDuke. Gary started his career in finance as a foreign exchange analyst with one of the first online currency brokers back in 2005, later moving on to trading client funds in foreign exchange and commodity markets. For the past 12 years, Gary has straddled the world of financial analysis and reporting, serving as a broadcast analyst and editor at Trade the News and more recently at The Fly, where he reports on breaking news impacting U.S. equities. Gary's cross-asset reporting and analysis have been featured on Bloomberg, Reuters, and The Wall Street Journal. Gary, thanks for joining us today.
2: It's great to be here. Great to see you, Gary. Thank you.
0: Yeah, one of the things that we wanted to talk about for this episode is a deep dive into Zoom's latest earnings and and annual report, 10K, that they filed, and, and really talk about them from And bring you in to talk about sort of the financial aspect of things, which um, might be interesting to our listeners. And then Steve and I have more technical, maybe architectural matters to discuss as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we put some numbers down here. Like one of the things that's super interesting is new customer growth is up massively for them year over year, obviously. And COVID's kind of an unprecedented thing. So how do you, as someone that looks at the market the way that you do, like, how do you deal with this? maybe once in a lifetime event and how you think about the future and how you would forecast what would happen to a company like zoom next?
2: Well, well, um,
1: starting with a simple question.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) We're we're not, we're not
0: easing our way in here.
2: (laughs) Um, when Chad has asked me to, uh, to join you guys on this, on this podcast, he wanted to Get an insight into the most recent earnings call for Zoom, but to me, the story really begins a year ago. Back then, the company reported 81,900 customers with more than 10 employees. That was up 61% from last year. They had 641 customers with gross of over 100,000 in trailing 12 months' revenue. So, COVID happened. And things have changed drastically for zoom, their growth rate and customers has gone up pretty much exponentially. And most recently they reported 467,000 customers with over 10 employees. That was up 470% from that Q4 that they reported last month. 470%
0: 470% growth. Four, I yes. mean, how many
2: businesses can do that in a year? That's crazy. Yeah. They went from 82,000 customers to 467,000 customers in the span of a year. This is what. COVID has done to a company like Zoom. It's it's mind blowing. And 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 now that we're starting to lap this year of COVID, I think the stock is starting to reflect that where we're starting to trend down a little bit because it'll be so hard to lap that kind of growth. And that's where the debate is on the street, whether the growth rate can sustain the valuation that Zoom has gone up to.
1: Yeah, I think it's super interesting because you could you could look at it like This has been an amazing year for Zoom and a lot of companies that experience this explosive growth because of COVID. At the same time, there's always a a yin and a yang. So what's the payment that's going to come due on this massive earnings? And I think that is exponentially slowed growth for the next few years, potentially. It's just, there's, you know, there's no way they can eclipse that, I don't think.
0: Just averaging it out, basically. Yeah, yeah.
1: It's like fast forwarded their business, maybe by five years, who knows, maybe a couple years. But over the long span of their lifetime, it'll just average out, I think, and be a little blip, potentially.
2: Well, that's what stood out to me on their conference call. All of the executives and all of the financial analysts, the sell side that's covering Zoom, they're not even looking at the meeting side of the business anymore. They're now much more concerned with how they can leverage to Zoom phone business and that's pretty much where all of the questions on the conference call were coming from. So that was, that was pretty fascinating. And Zoom is aware of that as well, because they, they devoted quite a bit of time to it. They highlighted a partnership that they just formed with the USC, 21,000 Zoom phone seats. They expanded their partnership on Zoom phones with Equinix. And also they profiled Universal Music Group, becoming their big global music company leading client adopting Zoom phone for its global fork workforce. So that's sort of where their their uh focus is there in this classic land and expand to a new area of business. They're definitely trying to
0: roll it and not become just a one one application company and turn it more into a
2: platform. Yeah. Their CFO is estimating the opportunity, the total addressable market for Zoom phone telephony side of the business at over 23 billion dollars by 2024 that seems quite sizable
1: yeah i wonder how they think about that because like i don't have a home phone anymore and i cannot remember the last time i used a phone in an office so i get that there's call centers and there's you know a lot of businesses that need phones internally but like the nature of work is changing rapidly and i just wonder if that's that growth rate in that tam is actually realistic
0: One of the things I found interesting reading through the 10K was that they talked a lot about viral demand generation, essentially letting users, uh, individuals use it for free when the lockdown happened to get them comfortable with the tool and comfortable with the brand, I think was brilliant, letting them uh, essentially win this space because now when everybody's got Zoom on their laptop, they've got it on their phone because they were using it to talk to their friends and family and it just made it so easy it didn't matter what platform you're on people might have used facetime but you know you have to have an iphone for that so being cross platform and just readily available easily everywhere gave people a comfort level with it so that when their business started using it or their kids school started using it it
2: just everybody was already fine with it As far as the phone goes, they have about a 2% penetration in Zoom phone. That's what they're estimating. Yeah, I just wonder if they can apply that viral demand generation
0: model to other parts of this platform that they're building or how they would do that.
1: I realized that Zoom had arrived when my mother-in-law was using it to play Bunko with her friends. This was like (laughs) nine months ago. And at the time, my wife had never really used Zoom. And so, you know, she's like a latecomer, which is hilarious given my job. All my friends that I talk to in Asia have switched over to WhatsApp. So that's what we use now is WhatsApp. We don't use Skype anymore. Speaking of Skype, like Microsoft's team's product grew by 10x or more during COVID as well. So it's not like Zoom is alone in the marketplace. There are competitors and they're moving quickly. And Microsoft has the benefit that Zoom doesn't, which is they have entrenched decades-old relationships with their customers. And so they leverage that relationship to sell their products.
2: Microsoft is uh, in talks to buy discord $10 billion deal. Well, Gary, that's interesting. Cause
1: when I was reading the zoom earnings report, they talk about unified communications as a service, like,
2: UCAS, and that's yeah.
1: something they're going after. Right. You And as I was reading down, I'm like, oh, zoom has a chat application. Right. <laughs> I honestly had no idea. <laughs> so I yeah. went to their website, saw it and I'm like, oh, it looks exactly like Slack yeah. surprise, surprise. And when you mentioned Discord, it just made me remember this because it's yet again another form of communication, right? It's a channel that Mm -hmm. people are using. And so maybe in the future we'll have, instead of people saying doing a Twitch stream, they're doing a Zoom stream, right? Yeah. People jump on Zoom, record them playing games, whatever. So there's lots of opportunities for that unified communications. But I think Zoom's ultimate goal, if I'm them, is to somehow become the default communication device on my cell phone and right now i still call people using my verizon network right so at what point does that become voice over ip by default
0: well you know these things cross over because you know amazon bought twitch which is really for game streaming and stuff but now corporations are using it to deliver their webinars Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have anything to do with gaming and I don't know if if Microsoft buys Discord and, you know, obviously they're going to roll it into some play around Xbox gaming platform, but are people going to start using it to deliver corporate presentations and stuff too, like we're saying on Twitch? I think it's inevitable, for sure. The first line in the Zoom 10K, they said, we provide a video first unified communications platform that delivers happiness and fundamentally changes how (laughs) people interact. And I just laughed at that line about delivering happiness because it just sounds so ridiculous. Like I don't I don't I'm happy to see and talk with my friends and I guess that's what they mean by it, especially now. But uh I I just don't think of these like software tools as being something that just in and of itself makes me happy.
1: Another aspect of Zoom that I thought was interesting is you know, if they really want to capture the consumer, I think one of the ways they do that is through the TV manufacturers. So, you know, like Chad and I, we get together for movie night every once in a while. And for me, it's like this complex operation of putting my iPad in front of me because it's got the camera because I have a home theater that has a screen with no, you know, no spot for a camera. Mm -hmm. So that's how I solve it. But like, that's, you know, a luxury, I think uh, for sure. And most people like in my other other rooms in the house just have a TV with no camera. (laughs) And I think Zoom, like, if they really want to make this a family fun thing, activity, make it possible for me to just go onto my TV and find my mom and say, click, call my mom. And, you know, we've all seen the movies where this is actually a technology in the future. And, you know, you call someone and they just got out of the shower or whatever, and it's all super embarrassing. But, you know, I think that is something that if Zoom can penetrate with like Samsung and LG and Sony and all these other TV manufacturers, that is a possibility too. Cause a lot of them are already running Android. So it's literally just an app and adding a camera.
0: You know, one of the one of the things that enabled Zoom to grow as fast as they did in the last year was their cloud-first and cloud-native architecture. And if they had been trying to build their app using their own private data centers and racking and stacking their own servers, there's no way they would have been able to keep up with that kind of 470% growth. It just wouldn't have been possible. And, you know, they talk about, in their 10K, and people probably aren't used to to sitting down and reading 10Ks. But one of the one of the sections of the 10K is, is what are all the different risks to the business that could that could interrupt their business, and they're legally required to say a lot of stuff. So there's just a, a lot of standard jargon. Oh, you know, we could be disrupted by catastrophic events, or we might not be able to hire and retain staff. I mean, those risks apply to every company, but. They specifically called out that a failure in internet infrastructure or interference with broadband access could cause current or potential users to think that their systems are unreliable. So having their system be super reliable is, is really important. And, uh, and, and so having the, the, just the ability to expand into all these different cloud data centers anytime they want to is, and be closer to the users is just so critical.
1: Yeah, I think that's a a great point. One I think about often is like, how many times did Zoom go down during the pandemic? It's like, I can remember twice. And I just so happened to be on Zoom at the time. The fact that it didn't become national headlines more often was a surprise to me, like a a pleasant surprise. Because whoever architected Zoom should get an award. Like if we had the GOAT awards for software developers, the zoom developers would be on that stage i gotta believe like they did such a great job scaling things out
2: another kind of an interesting tidbit from a earnings call in terms of risks to the business uh, one of the analysts uh, from citigroup actually asked how fast do you expect to grow your direct sales force if you are changing the way that you are compensating them in terms of new versus renewals and zoom's business seems to be well we've, cre- we've we've got this great messaging platform we're trying to parlay and leverage it into zoom phone can we continue to compensate our sales staff under their current structure they get they get commissions based on the new business that they bring in zoom had to make An adjustment over the past couple of quarters to to give them special bonuses but that's something that the investment community is also cognizant of so that's something i think that's also a consideration for them for the near to medium term
1: yeah for sure that hits home with i think both chad and i because we're in pre-sales our job is to help customers adopt our software and get them to use more of it over time right so sales is is going to be key for them and i think one of the challenges that companies like Zoom has, the company I work at, Chad, maybe you as well, the idea being, I want to have a product-led growth strategy so that people just come to me, my product, I've built it, they will come type of thing, and they just start adopting it, and you know, the freemium thing has proven it's worth time and time again now, so it just works. But when you have a business model like that, how much selling do you need to do for product-led growth? And... If they're going to change commissions and change how they compensate rep, reps, we know, have, having seen this day in and day out, incentives really do matter. And that will be a thing that we're going to all have to navigate at the same time. Is like, where do I spend my sales rep and sales engineer's time in the field with customers? Because if the product's supposed to bring everybody in, you could argue that I'm just going to talk to them after they're already spending a certain amount of money with us versus going out and hunting for new business, etc. So. It's an interesting, really deep topic, I think.
0: Well, I think the fact that Microsoft's in this business is a huge game changer there because from an enterprise point of view, working with businesses, they still need a large sales force there. Otherwise, Microsoft's just going to claim all that business. Steve, you were talking about competition. I mean, the multi-cloud strategies have been something that people talk about for a long time. It's been really difficult to achieve. How do you have an app that runs simultaneously across AWS, Google Cloud, Azure? It's kind of like this ideal that I think a lot of people want to think about because they want to be able to leverage one vendor against another. But it's, been, it's so hard to do that unless you just keep your app at such a basic building blocks of, oh, we're just going to run server based instances and use blob storage and just use the simplest things that are guaranteed to exist everywhere. But, but most customers haven't bothered to do that. They've just picked a cloud and gone all in with them. Yeah. You know, a recent announcement, of even AWS reInvent, is now like we announced that we're building software to manage workloads in GCP and Azure. And so even Amazon is starting to think about this multi-cloud stuff. And yeah. maybe we're going to be entering an era of multi-cloud. I don't know.
1: Well, I think we've been there for a while. Like, you know, in, in my job, I've been selling open source technology for over a decade now. And customers tell me constantly, and this is getting louder and louder, is like is open source is a de-risking strategy for us. Like, if we use your technology, we can use it on any of the cloud providers. And so that is a a real fundamental shift in thinking on how people are going to leverage open source and how it stays relevant in the cloud world is to be that abstraction layer. In general, though, I do agree with you, like people do want that ideal of write once, run on any cloud. So like we need the JVM of the cloud.
0: Kubernetes is is what people think is going to be that, right?
1: I, I do wonder if Zoom internally is like looking at their cloud strategy and saying we need to create, adopt and develop technology that can run across different clouds so that they can take advantage of price competition and things like that with their with their vendors being AWS GCP and Azure like I don't know if they're running on all of them or just one right now. All right, well I didn't have any more notes on on Zoom. I think we covered everything I was going to talk about. Well, thanks for joining us. Yeah,
2: yeah, it was fun.
1: Yeah, it was a good discussion. All right, so should we cover news of the episode? Definitely. One of the ones that's kind of a good segue from what we were talking about is the Clubhouse one.
0: Yeah, well, Clubhouse is certainly all the rage and what people are talking about. And I find it interesting because they've taken the exact opposite approach that Zoom did. You know, Zoom was all about, let's get it on every device. Let's get it in the hands of every user as quickly as we can. And Clubhouse is very exclusive. You can't join without an invite. It's iOS only. And I think for them, it's a, I think it's a marketing technique because they're following the play. If you think back a long time ago, what Gmail did when Gmail launched and you couldn't join Gmail without an invite and everybody in the Valley. Yeah. I was in, I was living in Silicon Valley at the time. Everyone was asking like, Oh, do you know anybody who works at Google? And can they get, can they give me an invite? Cause every, every Google employee got to send out like five or 10 invites. And, and that's, and, and it was, it was amazing at the time. Cause they were like, wow, you could have, 10 gigs of storage or whatever it was, some huge number. Yeah, yeah. But <clears throat> everybody else was like, you got 15 megabytes on Hotmail or something like that. So it was this massive upgrade that everybody wanted. And it went viral like that, which I think made a lot of sense.
1: Yeah. You think back then though, I think, didn't Google have to limit the rollout because they had to expand the hardware behind it as they went versus today where you can just, it's an artificial limitation, right?
0: Oh, definitely. yeah, definitely. Yeah. because back then Google, I mean they were running their own data center. Clubhouse Clubhouse, this is all public. I'm not giving away anything here. I mean Clubhouse is running on AWS. You can go to you can go to Clubhouse's website and they they talk about what their infrastructure looks like, what services they use. They talk about the fact that they use DynamoDB to store information about calls and and, and sessions and stuff like that. So they're definitely in the same boat as Zoom about being, cloud native and cloud first and all that which makes it all the more confusing to me why they're taking this exclusivity invite only route to be honest
1: well i mean i was thinking about that too we're humans exclusivity is always going to be a thing you know I, i just think that's the nature of how we behave so even though you don't need to do it now for business reasons or like hardware reasons expansion reasons there's still that human psychology that is attracted to exclusivity i think
0: Yeah, no, that's true. People, people want to buy the, the limited edition Nike sneakers or whatever it is. Right.
1: Yeah. And part of what makes things like supercars so unique and interesting for people to care is that they're so exclusive, right? You don't see them every day. It's like, in my mind, I'm, I love cars. It's such a newsworthy event. Whenever I see a Ferrari, (laughs) you know, like, oh, there's a Ferrari. Take a moment and smell the, smell the paint.
0: Yeah. And in terms of finding the relevancy towards, you know, how this would apply to people in sales or pre-sales, like I wonder if Clubhouse is going to start being used to sell things. Like we we talked about how Twitch has become not just a gaming platform, but a corporate communication platform. And perhaps Discord will go that way or maybe people will get tired of using Slack. So they'll move to Discord and it'll just become the new Slack or whatever. You know, I don't know. But yeah. I, I'm just curious to see how these new technologies affect you and me and, and our peers on the sales side and, and whether it'll start to be relevant to selling tech.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think in a future episode, we should have someone on the marketing side join us and talk about this exact thing. Is like how they view things like Clubhouse and Discord and Twitch. And, you know, maybe this is a good segue into our next topic, which is AR and VR. It's like, how are these technologies going to be used to sell software? or sell
0: yeah microsoft unveiled this thing called mesh and they're basically betting on the idea that future gatherings will be mixed in terms of in person and online and then also in terms of being across different platforms
1: it's like so much of selling is the experience of trying out the thing that you're thinking about buying whether you're you know If it's a product-led strategy, then you're trying it yourself. If it's open source, you've probably downloaded it and have been using it already. But there are things that are harder to touch and feel. I mean, in the software space, I can't think of anything right off the top of my head. But for selling in general, I think AR and VR would be helpful. For people that buy physical goods that that are maybe too big to go see or to move or transport, I don't know, that might be something interesting.
0: Yeah, we, we all switched from, from WebEx to Zoom in the last few years or whatever, right? It's very rare that I joined anything on WebEx anymore either.
1: Yeah. And
0: same. in my mind, it's kind of like Skype in that sense. It's just the old thing that uh, nobody's using anymore. But, but, but anytime we make these moves, we're still just doing the same thing. We're still having the same conversations. We're sharing our screens and doing demos. We're sharing our screens and doing slides. It hasn't, it hasn't like changed the game.
1: Yeah Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, still the most effective selling tool for me is a conversation.
0: Yeah, yeah so Yeah, exactly.: Well, and not just and not just a you know conversations over these remote tools are one thing, but yeah, Microsoft just published a study on the, in the Harvard Business Review about what the last year of working from home has done to our relationships at work. And they basically did a network analysis of of billions of data points like emails that were sent through outlook and uh, direct messages and and whatever teams meetings that they've had and they have proven conclusively that people's networks have shrunk over the last year the people that they Mm. interact with have shrunk it's causing it's causing a huge problem with a reduction in social capital because there there's just less cross-team collaboration going on so Companies are becoming more and more siloed as people just talk to the direct their direct teammates or whoever they need to do to do their daily job, and, and that's fine because we're all getting through a pandemic. So it was just yeah. like let's keep the lights on. But eventually we got to get back to this: how do we do innovation? How do we meet new people? Yeah. How do we how do we do that? And it's been hard for me because the last nine months has been that just the number of meetings that I have online, it's just every hour almost is blocked up and I have to go block huge chunks of time to prevent that from happening. Otherwise it'll all just be dominated by meetings.
1: That's right. And when we used to travel, it was like week on week off. So one week of meetings on zoom and then one week on the road. I always look forward to the one week on the road because I wouldn't have to be on a zoom all day, every day.
0: Well, and not just that it's, uh, it's also a good way to meet people and yeah, uh, you know, even if you whether it's an internal meeting or a customer meeting, you're going to be going out after after the meeting's over, maybe have dinner, have some drinks or whatever, and you get to meet more and more people that way and expand your network and that's where a lot of really interesting conversations happen. Yeah. And yeah. the ideas get proposed and 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 things and friendships get formed that that, that can propel things forward. So none of that is happening over Zoom.
1: That's right. And I think you and I would both agree that people buy from people they like and it's much harder to get to know someone and decide if you like someone when you've never met them in person and you're just meeting virtually. I think it can happen, of course, but it's just not as easy. It takes more more time to build that relationship.
0: Definitely. I, I, and even, uh, you know, that's kind of a, the deeper relationship aspect of it, but even, even at the topical aspect of just being at a happy hour and being able to bounce around and talk to, you know, I'm going to talk to this guy for two minutes, talk to that guy for five minutes, and and just meet people serendipitously a little bit. Yeah, that's that's never going to happen over Zoom, but people try to set up Zoom happy hours and stuff, but it's yep. just not the same. It's not anywhere close to being yeah. the same.
1: Well, and I remember one of my favorite things that happens when you're in a in a meeting with a customer at their office is when you start exploring new ideas and get into the art of the possible conversations. They can just go grab people from the floor, you know, their cube or whatever, and say, hey, come and join this conversation. It's really interesting. I think you might, you know, want to hear it. And I can't remember the last time that happened on a Zoom where someone said, wait, let me go invite someone else to the Zoom. So even though the physical act would be easier, it happens way less often, you know? I think there's something to the psychology of being on a Zoom and just like that's not a natural thing for people to do.
0: Yeah, this Clubhouse stuff. There was an interesting Twitter thread uh, that Sean Puri had started around Clubhouse and it, it went viral and how he basically thinks that Clubhouse is is just gonna peter out and, and not be the next big thing. And he thinks that a lot of it is because people people want time shifting. You know, they love the fact that they can watch their TV shows on Netflix whenever they want, or that they can download a podcast and listen to it in the car or whatever. And and clubhouse has this no recording rule you're not even allowed to do that you're not supposed to and and so it's it's really hard because people what are they gonna they're gonna come in in the middle of a thing and they miss the first half of it and yeah and you know so 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 his conjecture is that it's just gonna it's just gonna burn out because of that
1: or it becomes the new radio equivalent right like when I used to listen to the radio, if I didn't hear half of a song, I knew they would play the song eventually over again, right? You eventually hear all the commercials and you hear all the the jokes from the DJs, whatever. But if, if that's what Clubhouse becomes is like they just start replaying episodes and it's like radio, then if you didn't catch it this time, then catch it next time. And if you have it in the background always on, maybe it just kind of fades into the background like that. I don't know but I don't tune into the radio for exactly the reason that you talked about like I don't need to anymore. I have all the music I want on my phone at a, at a moment's notice.
0: Yeah, and podcasts too. So if I yeah. if I want to listen to to what used to be talk radio, yeah, it just yeah. it's just synced in in the Spotify app and I switch back and forth between music and podcasts.
1: That's right. So I don't need to wait around for a topic to become interesting. I can just go find it right away.
0: I also think it struggles from the same problem that Twitter does in terms of just, uh, just having a huge amount of noise and, you know, trolls and, and, and maybe it's, maybe it's better than Twitter in the sense that it's harder to have, say a foreign government create fake content and do all the stuff that we know happened. Um during the last election with with foreign governments interfering with stuff that's going to be harder to do in a voice only live broadcast type setting yeah so so they are better in that sense but the harassment is still going to happen they're going to have to figure out how they moderate content how do they deal with really bad actors in their system and stuff like they haven't figured out any of that yet
1: yeah well you know what's scary about this is like it's It seems, I I used to think it would be almost impossible to fake video, but now that you see these deep fakes that are very very convincing, it's like, okay, there's going to become a moment in time where something happens, where you can no longer tell if what you're seeing is real, right? I mean, we have special effects, special effects are great, like they look real, but we're not used to seeing a newscaster say something, you know, on, on the news and having to decide whether or not what we're seeing is real or fake. We just kind of default to real. And with video technology being able to emulate uh, or create these deep fakes, the same thing's happening with audio. So there was that Google presentation where they had their robotic assistant call and order something. I don't know if you saw that, it was part of their Google I.O. conference. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so what's to stop you from using that technology if it becomes ubiquitous? Then create like your own sort of channel on Clubhouse or your own broadcast where you program Barack Obama's voice to say certain things. You you program the leader of a country to say certain things.
0: How are people stopping you now? Yeah, like how are people
1: going to discern whether that's real or not? I mean, this could cause real problems in the world.
0: No, I think the platforms are going to be responsible for for saying you know and and verifying. Yeah, you you heard Barack Obama's voice and it was legit or not
1: well yeah we'll have to have some sort of like digital footprint that proves it i don't know i don't know how we're going to do that i don't think the incentives are there for companies like clubhouse to do it right now oh no I mean, no, no. See, it, it,
0: it would have to be because of the government regulated it or something Yeah. yeah. otherwise they're never going to do that
1: i mean you see what facebook's done right facebook set up that council and they have seemingly random people joining the council and they have this idea of cycling them out over time but they're not paid directly by Facebook but they are indirectly paid by other people like they have to make money because this will be a job and it's just a matter of incentives so they're they I don't think they can be wholly unbiased because of how they started right there's inherent bias in how they started so maybe that takes years or generations or decades to to groom out of the system, if you will. But I just I don't think we should entrust Twitter and and all these social media platforms to police their own content because the incentives are not aligned.
0: Well even in the last couple of days, Zuckerberg's been out talking about and proposing changes to the Section 230 protections that these platforms have and saying that these platforms do need to do some amount of regulation and where do we draw the line? And, and yeah. he's, he's basically yeah. saying, you know, as long as they're trying, it's not like a 8chan where anything anything goes, yeah. right? And these guys got to get shut down uh, or parlor, getting deplatformed because they had no mechanism to deal with bad actors. So I think he's saying that as long as as long as you try and you do something, it's fine. But I think the bar needs to be set at a level that society agrees with. and And then everybody has to play by those rules as opposed to just letting each platform decide how much they want to do.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But you, I mean, we see how hard that is, right? Like legislating the good is fraught with peril and getting everybody to agree on what the definition of good is when it comes to content on the social media platform. I don't, I don't see how we do that ever.
0: Well, I think that there are a base level of things that we could get the vast majority of people to agree on.
1: Well, yeah, so like I agree, like rated R movies versus PG-13 movies versus that, right? Like there are standards for content. So we could have a rating system where people have to self-rate the content based on their best effort, and then there's systems in place to validate that and do all that, you know, as, as robotically as possible so you don't have to make this a human problem too much because it just wouldn't scale. But I think it's the, the gray area, which is what we've seen in the last few years especially in the U S there's the the gray area is where all the really interesting conversations happen, but it's also where things can spiral out of control quickly.
0: Well, I think that, uh, well, Twitter, Twitter is a good example because it was definitely the clear winner in that space and everybody famous was on it for sure. And, and of course everybody else was listening, but we saw Chrissy Teigen quit. She was like the queen of Twitter. She had, Tens of millions of followers, whatever it was, and yeah, and she quit because just due to the abuse and harassment that she was getting from so many people yeah and and Twitter wasn't filtering it out from a technology point of view. So I don't know if that's the beginning of a sea change, and we'll witness more and more really famous people leaving Twitter for that reason. I don't know,
1: yeah, but then where do they go, and then they just like kick in the can, right? It's a shell game now. So if they leave Twitter and go to Instagram, then it's Instagram's problem.
0: That's right. All
1: right. There was another news article that I wanted to talk about. Um, I think really, really relevant to sales, which is the Google cloud capping sales commissions as losses mount. Yeah. I'm sure you saw that article. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was interesting.
0: That's as relevant to sales as it gets. I mean,
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: I'm always, I know that there's no perfect sales comp plan and every company is like always, always changing things and tweaking things and oh we're growing we need to hire a lot of people so we got to make the comp plans really attractive so we're going to pay you on out your bookings even if the customer didn't pay up front and it's all these little things that that are oh we're only going to pay you on the acv value and not the tcv value and i think all those things are are fair whatever you want to incentivize people to do on your sales team you should set up the incentive structures that match that but I think any sort of plan that caps commissions, I think, is total nonsense. If you're a sales guy and you're supposed to be based on commission, and why would you cap what that person could make? Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, I mean, definitely by having this as a public statement, they're going to lose a lot of potential great sales rep candidates right out of the gate. A great sales rep knows that their commission plan should not be capped. They know they can go make a lot of money if they're successful, and they're not going to want to go work for Google Cloud right now. There's no way. So I think they're making a statement. They're basically saying that if you're an A plus seller and you're great at your job and you have a track record of success going to president's club year over year, you're not going to want to come sell Google cloud. And I don't think a lot of people talk about this in the industry, but like sales compensation, when you look at companies, it's a bell curve of achievement, right? Like you set these quotas knowing that not everyone's going to achieve it and hoping that the rep that achieved it this quarter We'll build more pipeline, and maybe they'll achieve overachieve again in two quarters, and then the rep next to them will achieve on off quarters, and it will even out. And generally, that's exactly how it works. Part of that relies on those 10x salespeople that close the big deals that no one was thought possible. Right? It's the Usain Bolts of the sales organization, and without that, the bell curve is going to move further down. And so, I just wonder what's going to happen to their sales organization.
0: Every sales leader is always fond of saying, "We don't want big deals because." it messes up our pipeline and makes it not smooth. And we'd rather have tons of little deals. It makes it just easier to forecast. But you know, when, the, when those $10 million deals come in, they're not turning it down. They're not saying, oh, why did we do that? That was- I know. You know. They love it just as much as everybody else.
1: Champagne pours from the skies. You know that. I never believe a sales leader when they say that. It's, it's BS in my opinion. Yeah. Of course you want the big deals, but I agree. You have to have the cats and dogs in quotes. To fill in all the big all the gaps right the big deals are just bluebirds but you absolutely do need them
0: well i don't know that the big deals are bluebirds but you can't build a business on just big deals
1: yeah yeah you have to have a good mix
0: why do you think google did this policy
1: well that's a great question one of my questions to that question is like is this a precursor of gcp just eventually failing are they preparing for it to fail or are they trying to put it to the real product-led growth test right now maybe they're just saying A change in strategy for us is we're just going to let GCP grow organically more than we have before and see what happens.
0: Not worry about the enterprise relationships.
1: Yeah, yeah. But, you know, you and I talked about earlier how important those enterprise relationships are. So to me, this is like Google does not have an attractive enough service to attract people away from Amazon. They do not have the enterprise relationships in the right places to attract people away from Azure. And so Azure has that advantage of having these relationships for decades and Amazon has the advantage of their ecosystem is just super rich with tools developers want and need to build applications. Google is somewhere in the middle. There's certain things that I like about GCP. It seems like everyone I talk to says that it's universally faster than the other clouds, which is great. But again, speed is not not worth missing out on all those other services that you would get if you went on Amazon or Azure. And you see Microsoft building up more and more Azure-specific tooling for their customers, right? And they have that history, that legacy. So I think Google's the odd man out here in this situation.
0: Every time I do something on Google Cloud, just like you do any project, you're like, how do I do this? So let me go read about it. Oh, I ran into this problem. Let me find a Stack Overflow thread that discusses it. That content just isn't out there for Google Cloud. The number of problems that I ran into that I could not find a Stack Overflow thread or even a GitHub issue thread about was crazy compared to anytime I have to do something on AWS, I, I just Google it and the answer comes back immediately. Yeah. Yeah. Which is telling. It's very telling. Is this product-led approach going to work? I don't know. It says they lost $5.6 billion in the cloud computing business last year. Yeah. And a lot of that's because they're investing in new hardware and ramping up. And and I know they, they are hiring sales teams. I know a lot of essays have gone over there. But how long can you keep losing $5 billion a year on something?
1: I mean, Amazon doesn't make profit in every one of their profit centers either, right? You you, I think you can do it for a while.
0: And, and Google has cash to do it. I'm just saying, how long are they going to be willing to do it, I guess is what I meant. Even Thomas Kurian, came, when he took over, he basically said, we're we're going to be number one or number two cloud provider in the next few years, Where we're going to kill it. Yeah. And I think he made that announcement maybe two years ago. Yeah. And I remember reading that thinking, why would you say this? Who wants to go onto a, a platform which might be killed in three years? Who's going to invest their career and hundreds of millions of dollars of their company's money? And the CEO said, it's a good chance it might be killed. It
1: doesn't exactly instill confidence. Yeah. maybe not a great move by them i do wonder you think amazon or microsoft would worry if google cloud failed and now there's only two providers is there any concern about monopolistic behavior and things like that
0: well i think a lot of a lot of markets they devolve into a duopoly and you you end up with just two winners right you had like hp and ibm and or, you know at and and verizon
1: do you think it's possible we're there with aws and azure Already,
0: There are still people running in Google cloud, but I don't know if you, if you force me to sit down and make a bet on what it's going to look like in 10 years, I would say, yeah, most people, at least in the U S right. Would be on either Azure or AWS, the vast majority of it. Is it possible that someone else could enter this space? How could they possibly enter the space and be competitive with AWS at that
2: scale?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I'm thinking of an analogous thing that happened in auto manufacturing where Hyundai and Kia started out as building Fords. And then eventually they were able to use all their resources to build their own brand. That's how they did it. So you could argue that Microsoft and Amazon, as they build out their own data centers and they subcontract to other companies that provide data centers for them, those companies could come out and say, okay, we have a good enough offering where we're going to compete directly. Behind the scenes, they are the provider of the data center for those cloud providers, but they're also starting to come out and market their own, for example.
0: I think it would be hard to do without a massive government intervention. And you see, especially with, like you brought up Hyundai, I mean, the government of South Korea essentially went and helped spin up industries like LG TVs or Hondas or whatever, right? With these giant, I don't know how to say the word, chai bowls or whatever. These massive conglomerates and, and they're they're just like they are in China, they're very interlaced with the government. It's not like a separation of business and government. It's like they're much more related than we are here. Yeah, that's fair. Maybe the European Union gets together and, and says, Well, this is a problem. We don't have our own cloud vendor that's based in Europe. Let's make one that's European based to compete against Amazon and Microsoft. Yeah. They could.
1: Yeah, they totally could. Yeah, it's not the space race; it's the cloud race, basically. Could become that. Yeah,
0: exactly. If you go back and read the book "The American Challenge" by uh, John jacques Servant Schreiber, who was one of the original people who created the idea of the European Union in the first place, he was basically saying that if Europe doesn't get together and and start creating their own industries, and this was this was written in the '60s, that American companies are basically just going to come and own all of Europe's production, yeah. and then this was, this is a huge problem because Europe put together is about the size of America in terms of population and economy and all of that, but they were acting as a bunch of little independent countries. And so they had to band together and that's why the, the formation of the EU sort of really happened. This guy has a street named after him in Paris. Now he's super famous. he was talking about it in terms of microchips being created and computer the computerization of things and yeah still europe doesn't have an intel or an amd but but they're okay so maybe if they don't have an aws and azure they'll still be okay i don't know
1: it is interesting to think about with you know the conversation we had earlier about zoom and just how the decentralized movements happening right before our eyes right And that's leading to new places popping up where there's a lot of technical talent. I mean, anyone that's been hiring technical talent for a while now knows there's hot spots all over the world. Silicon Valley hasn't been the hottest spot for a while. You know, there's amazing talent in Israel, amazing talent in Berlin, London, France, like in Paris. I mean, you name it, there's no shortage of cities now where you can find great talent. And it's just a matter of time before those countries start spinning out entrepreneur after entrepreneur, starting companies, governments fund it with this nationalism idea of taking root i think that's going to be a bigger challenge to aws and microsoft potentially because like you said you know it may make sense to have a state-sponsored cloud at that point all right let's bring this balloon back down to earth along with our egos not
0: possible (laughs) thanks everybody for listening to our podcast Hey, everybody. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe or follow us on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. On Twitter, we are at Software and Blue, and our website is softwareandblue.com. We'd love to hear your ideas on companies that you'd like to see profiled, or if you have any recent tech news articles that you think might be interesting for people in tech sales, we'd love to hear about them.